Okay, so we're going to talk about judgment today. That will be our subject. And I just wanted to go back. This is where we left off last time. And we talked about this fourth beast, the little horn. And I tried to make a case that um, really Antiochus Epiphanes does not, uh, foot is not big enough to fit the shoe of what is described here, this fourth beast. So just for a reminder here, in the vision in Daniel 7, this little horn bragging and boasting, boasting proudly. And he would speak against the supreme God, oppress God's people. He'll try to change their religious laws and festivals, and God's people will be under his power for three and a half years. And that's significant because that that time period is um, also referred to in in Revelation. So um, I think it's fair to... Um, whatever, whoever this beast is here in Daniel, that maybe as we read about this in uh, Revelation, we might get some insight. Okay, and so if we allow the visions of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 to overlap, and if we allow um, you know, the description of the fourth beast in, in both of these cases to um, perhaps uh, enlarge, in, enlarge on the picture, in Daniel 8, we read that it grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven, Okay, which really cannot be a, you know, a physical battle. Okay, this is, it's describing, a, this is a spiritual warfare. The stars themselves, and it threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Okay, could we make a case for that referring to Jesus? And I think really the, the summary here, the, the description of this whole passage is that truth was thrown to the ground, or true religion was thrown to the ground. So this was a defeat uh, in terms in the realm of truth. Okay, and last time I, I tried to give you some examples of perhaps uh, what this is referring to in history. Okay, so uh, let's let's go to Revelation, and we have the same beast. I think there's so many of the features we could spend some time lining all of this up, but the beast here was allowed to make proud claims. You know, all the boasting, the proud claims, it's the same in Revelation and Daniel, which were insulting to God, and it was permitted to have authority for 42 months. Same period of time, three and a half years, 42 months. Okay, this is the same power here. And notice what it's doing here in Revelation. It began to curse God, his name, his character, the place where he lives, and all those who live in heaven. Okay, so the, the method here, what, what the enemy seems to be up to, is, is ultimately a, a distortion of what God is really like, okay, a distortion of his name or character, and, and I think, again, through the, that period of time, the dark ages, and not to say that it isn't still going on, but, but the horrible things that were said in the name of God uh, were very harmful to God's uh, reputation. <clears throat> so what we're going to spend uh, the whole time on here is, is God's response, and I think this comes out uh, most clearly here in, in Daniel 7. So we have to read this very carefully and consider what this is really describing. So we're still talking about the horn that had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting proudly. Okay, and this is what's described next. While I was looking, thrones were put in place. One who had been living forever sat down on one of the thrones. His clothes were white as snow, and his hair was like pure wool. His throne mounted on fiery wheels was blazing with fire, and a stream of fire was pouring out from it. So it's clearly referring to God here. And there were many thousands of people there to serve him, and millions of people stood before him. The court began its session, and the books were opened. While I was looking, I could still hear the little horn bragging and boasting. 
that as I watched, the fourth beast was killed, and its body was thrown into the flames and destroyed. The other beasts had their power taken away, but they were permitted to go on living for a limited time. So um, something happened here. God is on his throne, the books are opened, and then we have a description that this fourth beast was killed. Okay, but it goes on. We have to keep reading on here to get the full picture of what's happening. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one. Now, that's the one we were just described, sitting on the throne, all the fire, and, you know, with white wool clothes. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. Okay, so what does that mean? A human being comes in the clouds. Okay, he's not coming to the earth here, but he's coming to the ancient one and was presented before him. Okay, and he, the human being, was given authority, honor, and royal power so that the people of all nations, races, and languages would serve him. He, his authority would last forever and his kingdom would never end. And what's, what's helpful here in understanding this is I think we have uh, the same thing told in a different way in Revelation. And we've talked about this uh, towards the end of last year and we talked about it a month ago or so. So I'm just going to go over it really quickly. But, but I think the meaning that we took out of this in Revelation is the same meaning that we can apply here in Daniel 7. So the, the parallels in, Rev, in Revelation here, after the, the seven churches, uh, you'll recall there's an open door in heaven and uh, John is invited up. And what he saw in heaven was a throne. Again, throne room scene with someone sitting on it. His face gleamed like such precious stones as jasper, carnelian. And so, again, he's coming into the presence of God, just like uh, Daniel's vision. Okay, and you'll remember that he also is surrounded by heavenly beings, four living creatures that sing songs of glory and honor and thanks. And then there are 24 elders who fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and praise him. Okay, so we've got a throne room scene in both Daniel and in Revelation. Uh, but you'll recall here what, what happens in Revelation, how interesting this is, that John saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? And if we weren't familiar with this, if we're reading it for the first time, and we just kind of imagine... Um, again, that the God is obviously is sitting on the throne and he is holding the scroll. And a question is asked, who is worthy to open it? Okay, and you would, you would just wonder about the, how strange the question is. God's holding the scroll. And of course he's worthy to open it. And that's why it's surprising to read on that no one in heaven or on earth, as God holds the scroll, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it as God has it in his hand. Okay, and so what happens here is we have someone presented to God. Okay, the same kind of um, thing. Now, someone else comes onto the stage. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And uh, what, what I tried to describe uh, when we went through this earlier is 
that it isn't that the father stands up and leaves the throne and now the son sits down on the throne. That this is imagery that is meant to uh, describe something of great significance here. That the son comes on the scene uh, really as the revealer of God. And when the son reveals what God is really like, okay, that, then we have something quite remarkable that happens. Because when he did so, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They sang a new song. Okay, there's a new understanding. You are worthy to take the scroll, to break the seals, for you were killed, and by your sacrificial death, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. And now uh, Daniel or John looks, and I heard angels, thousands, and millions of them. They stood around the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, and sang in a loud voice. And then we have this long description here of praise for the Lamb. Okay, so the, the meaning that we tried to take out of uh, the passage in Revelation is um, perhaps more important than working on, okay, who are the four living creatures? What's the identity? Who are the 24 elders? What's their identity? That what we see here, just in terms of a progression, is an amplification of praise. Okay, we have God holding a, a scroll. He's surrounded by four living creatures, 24 elders. No one's worthy to open it. Jesus comes onto the scene as the violently slaughtered lamb, which is perhaps the best way we could translate that. And then there's a new song. And now we have not just four and 24, but angels, thousands and millions of them. And now every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, and they were all singing. Okay, so again, because of the revelation here of, of Jesus Christ, the, the violently slaughtered lamb, we have this incredible amplification of praise. Okay, so uh, if, if we can kind of make that case in Revelation, I think we could make the same case here in Daniel, that we have, uh, again, a throne room, a judgment scene, the court begins its session, and then Daniel sees what looked like a human being. And the human being is coming into the presence of the ancient one, and when that happens, we have, again, this incredible description that the human being that comes to the ancient one is now given authority, honor, royal power, so that the people of all nations, races, and languages would serve him. His authority will last forever. His kingdom would never end. Okay, so this is not, uh, we're not separating the father and the son, but we're saying that the, the, the son here revealed something that, that we really didn't know and understand about the father. And that, that revelation is, is what um, changed everything, changes everything. So we're, what I'm trying to do is to, to we're discussing judgment, and we, we tend to have, um, I think, a, a certain conception of what the judgment is, what it really looks like. And um, so here's, here's the picture that I had, I think, for most of my life. Um, okay, who's the judge? If you had to say, who is the judge, the judge? Okay, the father... And, um, of course, who is this here? Jesus. Okay, who's Jesus? He's our advocate, our friend in court. And uh, we stand accused. And so, you know, this is, again, how most judgment, for thinking of judgment, how most uh, models perceive this. But um, remember when uh, our first Bible study of the year, I said, uh, when any time we tackle a subject in the Bible, we have to take the, the Bible as a whole, okay? Not just a little bit here or there. We have to try to comprehensively see what the Bible has to say about a subject. And if you had to pick one book of the Bible that says the most about judgment, um, far and away it's the Gospel of John. 
Okay, it's talked about again and again and again and again. And so I'm, I'm just going to try to to amplify here on our meaning of judgment and then see if we can apply that back to uh, Daniel. So judgment in the Gospel of John, there's just chapter after chapter of extensive descriptions of judgment. And uh, judgment here, it's, uh, you know, uh, in Daniel, God is dealing with an enemy, okay, this bragging horn and all of this. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus would describe his mission here in coming to the earth and he's, he's just about ready to go out and be crucified here. And he would say, now is the time for this world to be judged. Okay, how, how is, do the events of the cross, how does that judge the world? Now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. Okay, understandings of the cross that also involve um, God defeating his enemy. Okay, to try to incorporate not just uh, personal salvation, but um, something even on a larger scale. Uh, this, this heavenly conflict that somehow uh, the death of Jesus is involved in that as well. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. So this is describing an intense um, revelation. Okay, revelation that when I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to me. And the ruler of this world will be overthrown. Overthrown in what way? Okay, in the way of, could it be, re- could we see that as revelation? Well, I think that's, that's what I see in terms of judgment in John. And I'm going to tr- just try to go through some of these verses uh, to, to round this out. Remember when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus? And he said, and this is the judgment. You know, could we have a more clear statement? My, the Good News Bible, which I didn't quote here, says this is how the judgment works. I mean, there's no verse that sets you up for saying, okay, if I'm really going to get a bottom line, uh, this is what the judgment is. Okay, so here's his description. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Okay, now in what way is that judgment? This is judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And... What we will see again and again as it relates to judgment is that, that there is a splitting effect. Okay, that it, there, is, there is a distinction. And we couldn't make that more dramatic here than contrasting light and darkness. So how did this work? Jesus is describing you know, his coming to the earth as judgment in this sense. That he, of course, is the light. Okay, but people rejected him and went into the darkness. So would this be in a judicial sense? Uh, couldn't this again be seen as Jesus came as the revealer? Okay, and what did, what did his own people say? He has a demon. Okay, but he came as a revealer. And uh, the, the question is, how do we respond to that revelation? Okay, and his own people rejected him and were in the darkness. And uh, this is really an incredible commentary here. I'm going to quote several times from it from uh, Rudolf Boltman called The Gospel of John, A Commentary. And he has a lot to say about uh, judgment in the Gospel of John. And here, this is what I'm trying to say in a nutshell, that unbelief by shutting the door on God's love turns his love into judgment. God comes in love. Okay, the, the judgment, the, the negative aspect here is uh, unbelief. We shut the door on God's love, and that turns love into judgment. For this is the meaning of judgment, that man shuts himself off from God's love. 
There would be no judgment at all were it not for the event of God's love. And with the mission of the Son, this judgment has become a present reality. So kind of, in a sense, the issue is, is forced upon us in Jesus. You know, Jesus comes as, you know, the, the perfect representation of who God is. And how do we respond to that? And it is in our response that, that determines what happens here. Do we reject and go into the darkness of misperception of God or come into the light? Well, fortunately, we have not just a verse here or there. Here's another quote from Boltman. Judgment is for him nothing more or less than the fact that the light, the revealer, has come into the world. This saving event, okay, the, the event of the revealer, is turned into judgment for the reason that men have shut themselves off from the light. Okay, so the rejecting that brings the judgment rather than something that is you know, imposed by God. It's more revealing what, what is inside of us. Uh, how do we respond to revelation? Okay, and one more. Before the encounter with the revealer, the life of all men lies in darkness and sin. Yet this sin is not sin insofar as God, by the sending, insofar as God, by the sending of his Son, holds the whole past in suspenso, and so makes the encounter with the revealer the moment of true decision for men. Because um, really, when you have made a decision um, you know, maybe you've not really encountered a full revelation. But then when you have, that becomes really a decision point, doesn't it? If you reject the, the, the perfect, the bright light revelation, okay, that, that kind of sends you on the wrong path. Again, not imposed, but of your own choosing. So another verse uh, here on judgment is in John 5.22, where Jesus would say, the Father judges no one. Now, hold on, we just have to back up here. Now let's try to wrap, wrap our minds around this. The Father judges no one. What do we do with that? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Okay, are we relieved? Okay, do we have the more sympathetic member of the Godhead judging us? Okay, of course we wouldn't want to say that. But what does that mean? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the Son is the judge. Okay, what does that mean? So that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, um, again, what we see here is the Father gives judgment to the Son, but how does the Son judge? Well, what we see the Son doing is trying to get people to honor him so that they will honor the Father. And anyone who does not honor the Son, you reject the Son, then... The Son came as the revelation of the Father. So by, by default, then you don't honor the Father who sent the Son. So the Son is the judge, but the judge is really the revealer who is trying to bring us back to the Father. So very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment. So again, coming into the light, believing the revelation of Jesus, and that person does not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. So again, it's, it's judgment as revelation. Okay, and again, just read John. There's so much on this. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment. Okay, how does it work? So that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Again, we have the, the splitting effect. Okay, do we see Jesus as a reflection of the Father or, or not? And some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? 
And Jesus said to them, if you are blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. They saw Jesus, and what they saw was the demonic. So they claim they see, but really they are blind. Okay, and many, who was it that came into the kingdom? As you know, Jesus described in Luke, the tax collectors, the prostitutes are entering the kingdom. Okay, but yet you people that claim you see have rejected uh, what is really true and good. So again, back to Boltman's commentary here. Once again, the coming of the revealer into this world is described as judgment. And according to this saying, the judgment consists in a radical reversal of the human condition. The blind will receive sight and the scene will become blind. Okay, and then uh, this verse here in John 12, again, just an incredible expansion on this. This is really Jesus' last words to the Pharisees in John 12. Okay, they've rejected him, and he cried out, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. It's the same theme here. Jesus came. Not so much to tell us about him, okay, but, but we're supposed to get uh, an incredible glimpse of the Father. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And that's the whole point. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. And here, I do not judge anyone. We want to know, okay, he just said he wouldn't judge people if you accept him. Okay, what does he do to people that don't accept him? I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. And now he seems to be saying he's not judging at all. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. So it just seems like John is, is trying to focus in. The father judges no one. The son is now saying, if you reject me, I don't judge you. Okay, but who is it? The one who rejects me does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. Okay, how are we judged by a word? On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. Okay, so what does that mean? This, this would seem to be uh, pretty important here. Okay, what's the word that will be our judge on the last day? Jesus said a lot of words. But in the context, if we just read that whole passage, Jesus is just saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's it. You need to see the Father in me. So in the context, I think what he's saying here is believing Jesus' revelation of the Father. That is, that's the crux of the matter. And uh, this, this theme, it's, uh, John is very intentional in bringing this up again and again. In the upper room, okay, he said to his disciples, now that you have known me, you will know my Father also. And also from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Hey, isn't that incredible? But Philip, of course, uh, seems quite mystified by this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need. Okay, come on, Jesus, you know, the one who did all those things in the Old Testament. Can we see him? Show us the Father. And of course, Jesus said, for a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Okay, we are one and the same. Heart, mind, character. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Okay, so the, so the judgment really, it's the revelation of the Father um, through Jesus. 
And so what is the Word? Of course, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was God who came. And the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And then the mission is spelled out so clearly in John. No one has ever seen God. No one's ever really seen God. But the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's cart. He has revealed God to us. Again, Jesus came as the revealer. Okay, and that revelation brings judgment. And so the verse that is, that is kind of, you know, this is the theme that this whole Bible study is based on, that what is eternal life? Okay, it's something now. It's in the present reality. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. And how do you know the true God? It's through Jesus Christ. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. On earth, I've given you glory by finishing the work. Okay, it's a singular, the work you gave me to do. And he would go on to just clearly say what that work is. I made your name known to the people you gave me. I revealed your character. And that is eternal life. Okay, so um, I want to give some examples of this, but just a little more before we leave John. And Jesus uh, said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Um, They have sinned. So Boltman's commentary here is that sin, therefore, is not primarily immoral behavior. It does not consist in any particular action, but it is unbelief. Okay, and of course, that leads to sinful behaviors. But if we want to bring sin all the way back, what is, what's the root of the sinful behaviors? What's at the core? It is, um, ultimately comes back to our picture of God. And our picture of God has, has an outflow of how we live, uh, the things we do in our life. Okay, but we can trace it all back to our conceptions of who God is. Okay, so, so what, is, what is God trying to do in each one of us? If, if it all seems to come down to this uh, revelation, you know, that's a function of the Holy Spirit, of course, in our time. And we've read these many times. I'll just go through quickly here. But, you know, the night before Jesus died, he said, I will ask the Father. He'll give you the helper who will stay with you forever. He's the Spirit. And what's he doing? Who reveals the truth about God? Okay, I think that is the constant effort of God to reveal that truth to us. The helper will come, the Spirit What does he do? He reveals the truth about God and who comes from the Father. I will send him to you from the Father and he will speak about me. And if the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, what? That's revealing God to us. It is revealing the Father to us. And finally, when the Spirit comes, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth. Okay, what truth? The truth about God. Okay, that's really the bottom line. So, um, Um, Sigby Tonstead here just has a good quote on this in a paper he wrote that revelation becomes judgment by exposing the individual's response to Jesus. To remain in the darkness means the darkness of misperception of God. So can we give some examples of judgment in the Bible? And I'm going to give one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Okay, Pharaoh, of course, he had a a revelation, so we can't say he's experiencing God in in all of his humility, but uh, he had a revelation that that would speak to him. Okay, and this this is a passage that is, um, um, I know, troubling to many, but I think this is describing a judgment experience. 
Pharaoh received some evidence. Okay, but when he saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned once more and he hardened his heart. He and his officials. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So in the span of three verses, we have a description that Pharaoh hardened his heart, just a statement that his heart was hard, and God hardened his heart. So which one do we choose? Or can we somehow incorporate all three into what happened to Pharaoh's, uh, can we say, mind? Okay, and uh, this is uh, judgment. Judgment is really how we respond to truth and evidence. Do we accept? Do we reject? Okay, Pharaoh had a lot of, of evidence. You know, he would only respond to evidence in the power arena. So God gave him a lot of powerful evidence. And so the description here that uh, is not original to me, but I, I think this makes sense. You know, you put a lump of clay in the oven, you put a lump of butter in the oven. Okay, same stimulus, heat. Okay, but what happens? The clay becomes hard and the butter melts. Okay, so God comes as the uh, revealer in many different ways into Pharaoh, okay, and instead of uh, melting, Pharaoh became hard. Okay, it wasn't that God was uh, two-faced or, or something, but he, God, in a certain way, did harden Pharaoh's heart. He brought revelation, a point of decision to Pharaoh, okay, and, and Pharaoh rejected that evidence, and his heart was hard. So Pharaoh ultimately is the one that hardened his heart, but God kind of brought it to a testing point. So I think we can incorporate both ways. But I think a better example here is um, the example of Peter and Judas. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, the disciples are on their way to the upper room. Okay, and it's, it's quite amazing here that on their travel here to the upper room that an argument broke out among them as to which should be thought of as the greatest. And isn't a pretty sad commentary here. Jesus is just going out to be crucified, and his disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest. Okay, not, not a very um, uh, good commentary on the disciples. So that's the setting. Okay, Jesus knows, you know, it must have been very discouraging. Okay, he knows he's about to go out and die, and here his disciples are worried about, um, you know, which one of them is greater. And so in this context, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he'd come from God and was going to God, and so he did something. And I'm sure I've explained this, at least while some of you were here. But, you know, if we didn't know the rest, and uh, Jesus here with his disciples arguing about such small things, and in recognition that he had complete power, you know, isn't this a time for um, she-bears to burst through the window, or for thunder, and Judas is burned up, or something like that? Isn't that kind of maybe how we'd want to finish off here the passage? But Jesus, in recognition of complete power, of course, what he did was he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist. Okay, and he washed, well, how many pairs of dirty feet did he wash? Eleven? Okay, did he wash the feet of Judas? Okay, well, it doesn't say that, but I would like to suggest that uh, absolutely he washed the feet of Judas. Now, this is an incredible revelation. I mean, you have God in human form, and he takes the role of a servant, and he washes the feet of his disciples. But now, how do we respond to that? Of course, you know the story here, but Jesus washed their feet, 
put his outer garment back on and returned to his place at the table. And he said, do you understand what I have just done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and it's right that you do so, because that is what I am. I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You then should wash one another's feet. And is this a, a command that this should be an ongoing ceremony? I mean, I think that's a, that's a great idea, but isn't this, you guys have this attitude. You're always trying to be the top person. And look at me, I'm the top person, and I just washed your feet. And this is what I want you to go out and do in the world. Live that way. I've set an example for you so that you will do just what I have done for you. I'm telling you the truth. No slaves are greater than their master, and no messengers are greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. I mean, this is an incredible, we talk about revelation, an incredible revelation. Okay, but we know what happened. He washed the feet of Peter, washed the feet of Judas, and as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, hurry and do what you must. And none of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money bag, some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told him to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Now, have you read this before, that Judas left the upper room and some of the disciples were thinking maybe he's going to give something to the poor. I mean, I, I don't know that I could restrain myself if Judas here is, you know, my betrayer, and he's leaving the upper room, I mean, wouldn't you just want to say something to expose him? You know, wouldn't you want to just, you know, give him something on the way out to humiliate him before the other disciples? And yet the disciples think he's going out to do something virtuous, perhaps. Okay, that's, that's remarkable. Okay, so we know what Judas did. Okay, now this is what Peter did. After just saying, you know, I would die for you, chopping off the servant's ear, and now what we see Peter doing is denying Jesus. Man, I don't know what you were talking about. They asked him, of course, if he was uh, with Jesus. And then the rooster crowed. And what's amazing here is at that time, the Lord turned around and looked straight at Peter. Or it could be said he gazed intently at Peter. Okay. In your mind, how do you paint the picture of Jesus at that moment? Okay. How was he looking at Peter at that time? doesn't say... Okay, but he looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered that the Lord had said to him, before the rooster crows tonight, you will say three times that you do not know me. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Of course, Judas also came back. Remember with the silver coins. Same place. Okay, and the Bible doesn't say it, but I, I like to think that perhaps uh, Judas and Jesus also made eye contact. Okay, and uh, just what I'm trying to say here is that you know, our, God is not two-faced. Jesus is not two-faced. And he treated Judas, he treated Peter with the same degree of love, revelation. And it was the response. Of course, we know what happened here, that Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, and Peter, of course, their eyes met. He went out and cried, but he repented. He was a changed person. Um, this is judgment in the sense that, you know, Jesus again came, this very intense revelation leading up to the cross. And uh, Judas despised a God who would wash feet. And he despised a God who would seemingly appear weak. You know, God's not weak. But this, this picture of God is a, is a humble God who would do something like that, I think was repulsive to Judas. And he rejected the light, went into the darkness. And Peter uh, was a changed person. Okay, so, so I think that we can see judgment in that aspect. I just 
looked up judgment here in the definition. Here's the first sentence on Wikipedia. If you look up judgment, judgment is the evaluation of evidence in making a decision. Okay, so the, the evidence that is being brought to us, I think in every way possible, is a revelation of Jesus. Okay, and our question is, how do we make the decision about that? And again, one more on, uh, from Sigvi Tonsted. The character of the judgment is revelatory, not judicial. When revelation can do no more, it is over, it is finished. Because what's the choice? If revelation doesn't change us, um, what's God's option at that point? It's only to use coercive force and power. Okay, and, and God does not coerce into the kingdom. He reveals, persuades into the kingdom. The revealer is not a judge, but the revealer. And when he can do no more as revealer, he must cease and desist. Okay, so what, what is really important about this is I think we're constantly receiving revelation, you know, and God is choosing the right time in different ways to, to reveal to us, to spark an interest. And it's very important how we respond to that. Uh, because um, this is one of my favorite quotes here of C.S. Lewis, that uh, the more often a man feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will ever be able to feel. So um, rejecting revelation or putting it off and just you know, saying, well, you know, think about that later, uh, there actually is a reduced capacity to respond in the same way the next time. And so when... Not necessarily talking about an emotion here, but when evidence about God is is brought to our minds, uh, that's an important time. We need our conscience, a very sensitive area of the brain, um, needs to to take that seriously and to respond, to act, or else it becomes harder to do so in the future. Father, thank you so much for sending your son and for revealing just this incredible picture of who you are. Um, Pray for each person here that uh, this revelation would become more intense, that we see more clearly what you are like, that we respond to that, that we become changed people, and that we go out into the world also as people who will uh, reveal something about your goodness and love. Amen.